And you'll find this on page 689. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can grab hold of one of the church Bibles. And uh, we're working through this book of Isaiah, and we're on page 689. It's a long reading, but actually this is the most important bit. This is God's Word. Isaiah chapter 5. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I'll take away its hedge, and it'll be destroyed. I'll break down its wall, and it'll be trampled. I'll make it a wasteland, neither prunes nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I'll command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are the garden of his delight. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. Woe to you who add house to house and join field to field till no space is left and you live alone in the land. The Lord Almighty has declared in my hearing, surely the great houses will become desolate, the fine mansions left without occupants. A ten-acre vineyard will produce only a bath of wine, a homer of seed, only an ephah of grain. Woe to those who rise early in the morning to run after their drinks, who stay up late at night till they're inflamed with wine. They have harps and lyres at their banquets, tambourines and flutes and wine, but they have no regard for the deeds of the Lord, no respect for the work of His hands. Therefore, my people will go into exile for lack of understanding. Their men of rank will die of hunger, and their masses will be parched with thirst. Therefore, the grave enlarges its appetite and opens its mouth without limit. Into it will descend their nobles and masses with all their brawlers and revelers. So man will be brought low and mankind humbled, the eyes of the arrogant humbled. But the Lord Almighty will be exalted by his justice and the holy God will show himself holy by his righteousness. Then sheep will graze as in their own pasture. Lambs will feed among the ruins of the rich. Woe to those who draw sin along with cords of deceit and wickedness as with cart ropes. To those who say, let God hurry, let him hasten his work so that we may see it. Let it approach, let the plan of the Holy One of Israel come so that we may know it. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. 
Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and champions at mixing drinks, who acquit the guilty for a bribe but deny justice to the innocent. Therefore, as tongues of fire lick up straw and as dry grass sinks down in the flames, so their roots will decay and their flowers blow away like dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord Almighty and spurned the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore the Lord's anger burns against his people. His hand is raised and he strikes them down. The mountains shake and the dead bodies are like refuse in the streets. Yet for all this his anger is not turned away. His hand is still upraised. He lifts up a banner for the distant nations. He whistles for those at the ends of the earth. Here they come swiftly and speedily. Not one of them grows tired or stumbles. Not one slumbers or sleeps. Not a belt is loosened at the waist. Not a sandal thong is broken. Their arrows are sharp. All their bows are strung. Their horses' hoofs seem like flint. Their chariot wheels like a whirlwind. Their roar is like that of the lion. They roar like young lions. They growl as they seize their prey and carry it off with no one to rescue. In that day they will roar over it like the roaring of the sea. And if one looks at the land, he will see darkness and distress. Even the light will be darkened by the clouds. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me! I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. He said, Go and tell this people. Be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make their hearts of this people callous. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, For how long, O Lord? And he answered, Until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitants, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and oak leaf stumps when they're cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. This is God's word.
Let's pray. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Heavenly Father, glorify your name in our congregation this day. Enable us through the work of your Holy Spirit to have humble, repentant hearts that tremble, tremble at your word so that we may trust the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. What was really going on in the American Civil War? Well, President Abraham Lincoln believed that the Civil War was evidence of God's judgment uh, upon them as a nation for getting rich by oppressing um, black-skinned Africans that they'd imported to work in their fields. In his second inaugural address, he uh, said these words. They're inscribed on the Lincoln Memorial. In fact, we're going to skip on a little bit. Um, start with the beginning both read the same Bible and prayed to the same God and each invokes his aid against the other it may seem strange that any man should dare to ask a just God's assistance in wringing their bread from the sweat of other men's faces but let us judge not that we be not judged next screen if we suppose that American slavery is one of those offenses which in the providence of God must needs come but which having continued throughout his appointed time, he now wills to remove, and that he gives to both North and South this terrible war as the woe due to those by whom the offense came. Shall we discern therein any departure from those divine attributes which to the believer in a living God always ascribe to him? Fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet if God wills that it continue, until all the wealth piled by the bondman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword, as was said 3,000 years ago, so it must be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. That's a stunning statement, isn't it? He recognizes that perhaps the civil war was judgment of God that their riches had come through slavery and injustice. I wonder, I wonder how we would view today. I wonder if our current political leaders ever reflect in such a biblical manner about our economic woes, about our social problems. Uh, last year, there were half a million new cases of sexually transmitted infections in the UK. Last year in the UK, £118 million of taxpayers' money was spent uh, conducting abortions. £75 million of the taxpayers' money went to private clinics where people offer uh, pregnancy counseling and then profit from the abortion procedures that they carry out. We heard this week of liver specialists warning of an epidemic of alcoholic liver disease among uh, people in their early 30s with the growth of binge drinking with the admissions in the northeast England increasing by more than 400% over eight years and 61% across the nation. And I wonder what the, the Christian leaders reflect about the decline within the denominations. From 1965 to 2003 in America, the Episcopal Church saw a 35% drop in membership. The Presbyterian Church 
USA saw a 43% drop. And here in Scotland, over a similar time period, there's been a 35% drop in membership. Dramatic declines in the church, dramatic increase in social problems within society. I wonder what Isaiah would say to us today. You know, the Met Office often uh, issues severe weather warnings, and I think that's what Isaiah is doing in Isaiah chapter 5. It is the climax of a severe weather warning. Dark clouds are on the horizon. God's judgment is coming because they, as as a people, had lost sight of what they were supposed to be as God's people. And he begins by talking about this uh, parable, the vineyard of the Lord Almighty. It's a parable that warns us really of how peace and prosperity can actually breed spiritual complacency and moral compromise. The Lord makes this stunning vineyard, this beautiful vineyard. What more could he do? And yet he goes looking for fruit and does he get good fruit? No, he gets bad fruit. All the peace and prosperity they'd enjoyed during Uzziah's reign had been sort of spiritually toxic to them. Instead of the good fruits of of justice and righteousness, there was the bad fruit of moral compromise and spiritual rebellion. It was true personally of Uzziah. In 2 Chronicles chapter 26, it says this. Listen to these words. But after Uzziah became powerful, his pride led to his downfall. He became powerful, and his pride led to his downfall. He was unfaithful to the Lord his God. And so he got struck down with leprosy. And what was true of Uzziah was true of God's people corporately. They'd experienced great blessings of living in the land, material blessings. And yet... And it caused them not to be thankful to God or to worship Him or to be faithful to Him, but actually to turn away from Him. And so Isaiah is giving this kind of severe weather warning, a spiritual uh, alert that the judgment of God was coming. Because they were a people that were more committed to materialism than to justice. Look back at chapter 5, verse 8. They're more concerned with real estate, aren't they? Bigger houses, squeezing out the poor. Woe to those who add house to house and join field to field till no space is left. God's judgment was coming because God's people were more focused on pleasure than righteousness. Look at uh, verse 11. Wild parties and drinking were more important than knowing God. Woe to those who rise early in the morning to run after their drinks who stay up late at night till they're inflamed with wine. They have harps and lyres at their banquets, tambourines and flutes and wine, but they have no regard for the deeds of the Lord. All these distracting pursuits of materialism and pleasure amongst God's people in Judah had actually just increased their moral confusion, had increased kind of a a, a moral perversity. Look at verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good 
evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. What would Isaiah have to say to us today? Are these not exactly the same challenges that face us today? We've had 60 years of peace and prosperity in this country. What has been the fruit of this peace and prosperity in which we've lived? What is the fruit within our society? What is the fruit within uh, Christian churches? Well, we now live in a time where some church leaders teach that what the Bible calls as evil is good. Sin is acceptable. And do you not feel uh, the same pull to a, a godless life of just taking care of business, buying and improving your house, looking forward to the next party, the next bottle of wine, uh, just living to increase creature comforts, uh, looking for the next amusement for ourselves, rather than having a concern for God's word and God's glory. Are you not similarly tempted by this culture? I think it is a bit bogus just to blame the bankers for our current crisis, don't you? We forget the fact that um, the offer of cheap credit was taken up by the majority of us to get bigger houses, nicer things, inflate the, the market, inflate the prices, make it almost impossible for first-time buyers and the poor to get somewhere to live. Extended our credit cards, and now we are paying the pain of our ever-increasing desire for more things. And really, as we as Christians, were we any different to this? Now, we should be warned by God's word, I believe. God's judgment does come upon his people who live in a godless compromise, who rebel against the clear teaching of his words. And it was Isaiah's job just to warn, to warn them of the judgment clouds that were, that were bearing in on them, the darkness in the sky. We were walking up Arthur's seat yesterday and uh, just seeing these dark clouds rolling in. It was an awesome sight. But it's a terrifying sight that he's proclaiming to them. He's warning them that the dark clouds of an invading army are on their way. Verse 26, the Lord is calling for the distant nations. The Lord is whistling for them to come. Come, destroy the walls of this vineyard that's only produced bad fruit. Now today we've got the threat of terrorism, of an economic stagnation, but you know, the great danger for godless lives is that we're facing judgment and hell. That's the greater threat. And is there a hope for a people of God facing spiritual decline in our churches? Is there any hope for us as a nation? Well, I believe that the answer is to be found in exactly the same place that Isaiah found it. We need a fresh realization of the glory of God. 
And it is at this point, in the, in the darkest moment, that in, in, as, as, as Isaiah paints this awful portrait of failure and judgment, that we get this amazing commissioning of Isaiah. And if we're to withstand the, the pull of um, the seductions of this world, of living a godless life, then we need to see the true and greater glory of our God. That's what we need. A greater vision of this God. And this vision that Isaiah saw, it actually shaped the whole of his life, the whole of his ministry. All the rest of this book was built on this profound experience that he entered into. And I've been praying this week that we would know more of this reality, of this great glorious God in our lives, in my life, in this church. For this is, I'm sure, what we need. He glimpses the glory of God. Look at 6 verse 1. I saw the Lord's. I saw the Lord. There's four stages here. Firstly, conviction in verses 1 to 4. Isaiah's vision put a deep conviction in him that the Lord God was the holy king. John chapter 1 says that uh, you can't see God. Uh, God is spirit. He cannot be seen by human eyes. But here God chose to reveal something of his glory to Isaiah. He says, I saw the Lord seated on a throne. And there's huge restraint here by Isaiah. He does not describe the Lord, but instead he describes a throne. And and the train of God's robe. and, And these heavenly attendants, the seraphim. And really, it is an awesome chapter, isn't it? And the whole picture is of the, of the majesty and the splendor of God. When did he see it? It, it? It's a stunning moment. In the year that King Uzziah died. Uzziah, who presided over peace and prosperity, uh, a great moment of transition. In the year that the king died, Isaiah saw the king. The king. And even as we seek to engage as good citizens in a political process with our politicians, we must never lose sight of the fact that it's the Lord God who is the King. And Isaiah sees both the transcendence of God that his throne is high and lifted up. It's as if he's in a temple and and, and he's, he's looking up and there's this vast throne uh, that he sees in the distance. And all he kind of sees is this is this robe. Uh, from God coming down, filling the whole of the temple place where he is. God is both transcendent, and yet his glory is present and filling the temple. And we'll see, it fills the whole earth. But it's not just his, um, the kingship, it's, it's his righteousness that he sees. So Isaiah draws our attention to these uh, seraphs. Uh, It's more a description than their name. The word literally means burning ones. These these, uh, heavenly creatures that are burning. And uh, they have two pairs of wings that they cover their face. Uh, These glorious beings uh, actually have to shield their their eyes from seeing the glory of the Lord. Such is His glory. Uh, They cannot almost look upon the glory of God. They shield their eyes and they shield their feet. There's a humility about these glorious ones before such a great God. They're there solely to do the 
God's bidding. Whatever he says, they will do. And as they move around, they're worshiping and declaring to each other, verse 3, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, in the Hebrew language, uh, they don't have kind of comparative degrees. So they, they don't say tall, taller, tallest. So they would say, oh, this person's tall, this person's tall, tall, and this person's tall, tall, tall. And these heavenly beings are crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. There is none holier. He's the holiest. And as they speak, the, the, the sound of the voices of these seraphs causes the whole place to shake and fill with smoke. These awesome, powerful creatures who speak and the place shakes. And they are but his creatures. They speak of the far greater power and glory of God himself. You see, Isaiah, when he saw this, this, to see this means you can never live the same. Don't you agree? To get this, that God is the most holy. That God is the king on his throne, ruling over all the earth. When we get that, then we can never live the same. We can never be the same. We cannot live just like everybody else when we get the holiness of the Lord God Almighty, the all-powerful one, the God of hosts, the God who controls the mighty uh, multitudes of angels. Just you know, You've got a few seraphs described here. And there's, he's the Lord of hosts. When this God speaks, we listen, don't you agree? If we get that he's the almighty one, he's the king, he's the righteous judge, he's the morally perfect one, he is the one who determines what is right and what is wrong, he is the one who says says what is good and what is evil. Without God, as an independent reality, we, we have no way of defining what's good and evil. He is the absolute. He is the one that we determine what is good and evil by his very character and his nature. He is the supreme power. And I wonder, have we come to that conviction? Have you come to that vision of the greatness of the glory of God? Have you come to see that his preeminence, his supremacy in all things, have we seen that? And what is the evidence that we see that? Well, the evidence will be that there'll be a deep awareness of our sin. Look at verse 5. Look at this confession. Woe to me. Woe to me. In chapter 5, he he says, calls these woes. He's, He's lamenting over the nation and its lostness. Woe to this nation who do this and this. Woe. Now, why does he speak like that? Because when he saw God in his holiness, he realized that he was utterly ruined. Woe to me. I am ruined. I'm glad for the rally for marriage. I'm glad that we're standing up and speaking as a voice to this nation. But I think there is a great danger as we speak uh, as uh, church leaders that the church just uh, that the world just thinks that we're just uh, people who are saying, "Look, we're good and you're all bad." 
And I don't think the message has got out that we're just saying in the church, actually, when we get the holiness of God, we're saying, we are bad. There's only ever been one righteous man. Lord Jesus Christ. When we get the glory of God, His holiness, the right response is, is verse 5. Woe to me, I am ruined. Isaiah sees the glory of God and all he, all he can think of is his own grubbiness, his, his foulness, his immorality, his sin. He feels utterly lost, utterly ruined. Have you had that experience, even in a small way, sensing your sin? If you have not, then you do not know God. He is totally convinced of his utter worthiness to receive God's judgment. I'm ruined, he says. And the truth is that, you know, we, we play this game of, um, yeah, yeah, I know I'm not perfect, but I'm not as bad as that person over there. We, we, we always find people who are worse than us. Those who are in prison uh, find a way to find the, the worst prisons. At least we're not like that scum over there. We all find others to compare ourselves with. But my friends, whether you're at the top of Everest or whether you're at the top of Arthur's seat, when you're talking about how close you are to the moon, there's, there's hardly any difference, is there? And as we compare ourselves to the holiness of God, there, there, there is a right way in which all of us would say we are utterly ruined. And, he's, and he picks on one of the things that you probably think is the least significant matter, the issue of speech and lips. I mean, what's the big deal if you swear? What's the big deal if you cuss? What's the big deal if you slag people? What's the big deal if you lie a bit? I mean, these are small things, aren't they, in the scheme of things? And at that very point, at that simplest and what we consider our lowest point, Isaiah says, We're ru- I'm ruined. I have unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. And he to- feels totally worthy of God's judgment. I think part of our weakness as churches and as Christians is because we have such um, a poor understanding of our sin. We, We don't really seriously consider the holiness of God. There's no conviction of sin And so we feel pretty confident about ourselves, pretty confident uh, that we are okay with God because we have such a small view of God. God. God bears upon us with such little weight as a society. He's so little considered in the culture around us that even in, in, in amongst God's people and in, in churches, we don't feel the weight of the glory of God and His holiness and His majesty. When was the last time we, we had such a sense of, of God's awesome holiness that we came under conviction of sin?
God's people in Isaiah's time weren't there. And so he warns them, verse 24, Therefore, as tongues of fire lick up straw, and as dry grass sinks down in flames, so their roots will decay, their flowers blow away like dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord Almighty and spurned the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, the Lord's anger burns against his people. His hand is raised and he strikes them down. The mountains shake, the dead bodies like refuse in the streets. Yet for all this, his anger is not turned away. His hand is still upraised. Can I say to you, if you've never experienced conviction of sin, then can I urge you to call upon God that he would so act in your life that you'll come under that conviction of sin. Now, it may seem to you a very strange thing to ask of God that uh, you would so sense his holiness that you'd feel ruined. But let me tell you, that alone is the place of mercy and grace. It is when we confess that we're a people of unclean lips and unclean lives that there is hope of God's mercy and grace as we see in the cleansing in verses 6 and 7. Verse 6, Then one of the seraphs, after that confession, then... One of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he'd taken with tongs from the altar. And with it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. It is an incredible event, isn't it? As soon as he confesses his sin, the seraph flies to him. Now, it could be that uh, the, the, the reason that Isaiah calls them the burning ones is because they put a burning coal on his lips. Not altogether clear. But it's interesting to me that God's grace is applied specifically to the point of his confession. He confesses his unclean lips. The seraph comes and brings a coal and applies it to his unclean lips. God's grace meets him at exactly at the point that he senses his needs. Notice now how he's cleansed. He's cleansed by the application of the place of sacrifice in the temple. The coal came from the altar where in those Old Testament times, sacrifices, animal sacrifices were made and blood applied so that people could be forgiven. Of course, we're in the Old Testament. And in a sense, the whole of chapter 6 is, is speaking of Jesus Christ. In fact, in John chapter 12, uh, John reveals this to us, that Isaiah spoke of seeing the glory of Jesus Christ. Who is this glorious one in the picture? According to John, it is nothing less than the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ upon his throne. And what's going on at the, at the altar? Well, that altar there is, is, is over its many, many uh, thousands, hundreds of thousands of animal sacrifices was pointing forward to the one sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ upon the cross. Where he, the righteous one, died in the place of unrighteous people like me and like you so that we could be cleansed from our sin. But when you notice here, it's not automatic, is it? The sacrifice must be applied to our lives personally and individually. And that happens through repentance and faith, that we personally repent of our sin, that we confess our sin, and seek his forgiveness, and then the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ offered at the cross becomes ours and is applied to us. Has it been applied to you? Have you come to see your sin? 
Have you come to see your utter ruin apart from Christ? And have you called upon God to have mercy upon you? My friends, if you will repent and trust the Lord Jesus, this grace is for you today. See, your sins are taken away. Could be our our news today. It is hope. It is the only hope. It's the only hope as individuals, and I think the really the only real hope of change in our society as is as each individual comes and receives this forgiveness, this cleansing, this changing. I'm all for changing for better education, better schools, better housing, all the rest of it. But unless we change the people inside the houses, there's no good. We need changed lives. We need the forgiveness and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, deep conviction, confession, cleansing, and then this amazing moment of having been cleansed, this commissioning in verses 8 to 13. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Now get this. When we get a vision of the majesty of God and he says, Who should go for me? Do you see the eagerness of Isaiah? He's like a little kid. Me! Me! Please! Me! Send me! And that's a true mark of knowing God, isn't it? When we know how wonderful it is to be forgiven and cleansed when God's got a job, we're saying, send me. What a job God gave him. Verse 9. Go and tell us, people, be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make their hearts of this people callous. Make their ears dull. Close their eyes. Go, preach, and you're going to be a failure they're not going to respond. In fact, they're going to harden their hearts. That's what I want you to do, Isaiah. I want you to go and proclaim this message. And, and it's about the results so much, uh, uh, as much as the message here, isn't it? And here's, the, here's a spiritual weather warning for us today. It's not enough to come and hear God's word preached. It's not enough to read the Bible. Let me tell you, you're in a very dangerous place today because you hear God's word, you hear the offer of the gospel, and you know, if you go away and do nothing, what's going on is your heart is being hardened. As we hear God's word, we will either soften our hearts and move forward in faith and repentance and trust, or actually if we do nothing, we are hardening our hearts against God's word. It's a very serious and somber thing to hear God's word proclaimed, is it not? What will happen to you this day? Will you further harden your heart? You say, no, I'm not listening to the Bible. I'm not listening to God. I'm, I'm just going to go out and live for this world. Well, my friends, if that is your attitude, let me humbly ask you to, to repent. Do you not see the awesome clouds of God's judgment on the horizon? I read a quote this week of one man uh, who was a preacher in East London, Archibald Brown. And he spoke of the fact that knowing that actually that for hundreds of thousands of people in the East End, and it would be true for Edinburgh today, it's only the thickness of their ribs that stands between them and hell. 
Oh, my friends, do not harden your hearts against God's word. Come and repent and acknowledge the glory and the greatness of God. Come to the altar of sacrifices provided in the Lord Jesus Christ so that you can be saved. And the only encouragement really there for Isaiah at the end of this message is that the exile will happen, destruction will happen, but then in the final verse, there's this wonderful promise. But as the terebinth and oak leaf stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be a stump in the land. The hope is the Lord Jesus Christ. For Isaiah yet to come, for us he has come, and we're going to rejoice to sing his praises over the coming weeks, are we not, as we think about this uh, Christmas time. What a privilege that we've got to invite and encourage other people to see. Here is the hope. Here is the way for individual cleansing and individual change that will impact our society and our culture. How do you get sustained to keep going, living in a culture that is so godless, that cares so little about the Lord Jesus? How do you keep going? It's by returning to the awesome reality that the Word became flesh. That He made His dwelling amongst us. The apostles say, we've seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Let us ask God to give us a fresh vision of the glory of God in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. For that alone will sustain a people dark days. Let's pray.